0: Well, amen to that. Hey. 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 Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, If I have not had the chance to meet you or you're watching this and I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name's Chris, uh, one of the leaders here. Uh, Great to have you joining us. Uh, We have people watching this all over the place, uh, both physically and uh, like in terms of like spatially, like space-time continuum, like there's going to be people watching this online later, uh, so I don't know how that all works, but, uh, well, I do because, like, the internet and stuff, but... um but yeah, super cool to have you joining us. Uh, not a great time for my iPad to do weird things, but hey, there we go. we got it figured out. Okay, uh, we are in a series on the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible, uh, grab it, open it up. We are in Matthew chapter 18, and just like a warning, this is a doozy. I think I say that every week, but this is a doozy. We're in for another doozy. But here's here's the ask, okay? I think what uh, Jesus has for us this morning uh, is perhaps one of the most profound uh, realities that every single person who has ever lived for all time of all of human history deals with. And so here's, here's my ask of us uh, this morning, no matter where or when you are watching this, for the next 30 minutes, like dial in, like focus in to what Jesus has to say to you. Uh, because I believe that what he is going to give us this morning is so profound that if you would give him the next 30 minutes, that this could radically change your life. This could radically change your life. So the ask here is that you would submit the next 30 minutes to the Spirit. You would just give it to him. That you would just open your heart to receive what he has to say for you this morning. So I'm just going to pray for us really quickly to that end, because I do believe, uh, I I just believe that what he has is going to hit every single one of us uh, in a pretty significant and specific way. So let me pray. Spirit, we invite you into this moment right now. We invite you to speak Uh, We invite you to have your way. We invite you to change us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to inspire us, to confront us. But we ask that you would show us Jesus this morning. We need to see him. We need to hear from him. We need to know that he loves us. And so would you do that, we pray. And all God's children said... Amen, amen, amen. Okay, here we go. Let's get right into this because I got a lot of ground to cover. Matthew chapter 18, picking up in verse 21. uh, Here is what Matthew records. He says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked a question. He asked this question, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? And then he asks a follow-up question up to seven times. So let me just stop there because it seems like this question's coming out of thin air, but it's not actually coming out of thin air. If you've been tracking with us week after week, you know that last week Jesus spent quite a bit of time unpacking how we are to deal with one another when we sin against each other. He spent a ton of time talking about how the church is supposed to Uh, interact around this issue of sin or transgression within the church. So if your brother or sister sins against you, what are you supposed to do? And actually, all of Matthew chapter 18 has been Jesus unpacking for us through many parables what life looks like in the kingdom. And so Peter's question is is a profound one. It's it's relevant to the context, but it's relevant to the human experience. I, I think Peter is asking, perhaps, this is just my opinion, but I think he's asking one of the most essential human questions that a person could ask. There's a word in his question that is so important or profound. It's right there. If you have your Bibles or your phones, I'll put your pretty little eyes on verse 21. It's an F word, right? It's the F word. Not the F word. It's just like, it's an F word. Forgive. Forgive. He says, forgive. What did you think I was going to say? Jeez, you guys, come on! Jesus hears this question from Peter, and the Peter, or the question Peter asks Jesus is, "How many times am I supposed to forgive?" So, when someone sins against me, when someone does harm to me, when someone wrongs me, how many times am I supposed to give? Now, look at Peter gives an answer. He kind of answers his own question, right? It's like you know, when you're asking a question, you don't want the answer to, so you give an answer. Right? And if you notice what Peter does here, I'll explain it to you in just a second, but he kind of like hedges his bets a little bit. So he says up to seven times. Now, context matters, okay? So in the Jewish community of which Peter was a part of, the rabbis had this kind of tradition around the issue of forgiveness where, where it was commonly understood that you were to forgive up to three times. So if someone wronged you, you know, it was like kind of like three strikes you're out, and then on the fourth time, you don't have to forgive anymore. So, so Peter comes here, and he's like, I'm a little bit better than the rabbis, right? I'm not saying three times, I'm saying seven times, like, look at me, Jesus, aren't I good? Isn't seven a good number? And it's easy to look at Peter, as we often do when we go through the gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, and think of Peter as somebody who's like, oh, come on, you never get it right. But the reality is, when it comes to forgiveness, this is often how we think through the idea of forgiveness. I will forgive you, but there's a limit to my forgiveness. There's a limit to the number of times I'm going to forgive you, and there's a limit to the acts you can do, that I will actually forgive. Like there's, I have these imaginary lines somewhere. I don't know what they are. I don't know where they are. I don't know how many times I'm going to forgive. But there are limits to the amount of forgiveness that I am willing to offer you. And again, I think this is the most basic or essential human question. Here's why. Because if you have a pulse right now, if you are breathing right now, then you need to forgive. You need to forgive, and you need to be forgiven. It is impossible to get through life like a normal good day without needing to under, without, without having to uh, forgive somebody, without having a, a firm grasp on this issue. And, and I want you to think through your life right now in just like a two-second snapshot and think of how many times you have needed to be forgiven and it wasn't granted to you. And I want you to think of how many times you have needed to issue forgiveness, both big and small, and you're holding it back. You're refusing to give it. You're holding onto it. Uh, the question that Peter is asking Jesus here is the most fundamental human question. And look at what Jesus says. Does what he always does. He kind of blows up our categories. Look at what he says. Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Some of your translations will say uh, 70 times seven. You know, is Jesus saying to Peter, well, not seven times, but 70 times. And once it gets to the 71st time, or not seven times, but 490 times, once it gets to the 491st time, then you're done. You've hit your limit. Of course not. Jesus, as he often has done and is doing here again, is using a hyperbole to make a point. What Jesus is saying here, and don't miss this because it's really important, and this is why Martin Lloyd-Jones, he calls uh, forgiveness the biggest problem in the universe. Martin Lloyd-Jones, teacher, preacher that I love to read, he says of forgiveness, it's the biggest problem in the universe, and here's why, because what Jesus is teaching us on forgiveness is that there needs to be an infinite, endless limit to the amount that we are willing to forgive. infinite, endless, limitless amount of forgiveness. I don't like that very much. Me neither. So Peter comes to Jesus and he says seven times? Is that, like, that's a good number, right? Like, that's a lot if you think about it. Right, If you've been hurt by a person seven times and you're still willing to engage them in relationship, like by cultural standards, you're a pretty gracious, forgiving person. And Jesus comes and says, Peter, seven times, what are you talking about? Seven times will ruin you. If you set a limit of seven, it's going to ruin you. If you're, Peter's married, you can't get through breakfast if you're married without having to forgive seven times. Peter has a mother-in-law, right? Like, a mother-in-law. Like, think about that. Seven times? (laughs) Do you have children? Seven times? You got here this morning and you have kids. You have had to practice forgiveness more than seven times already today, and it's like 9.15 or something. Jesus is saying there's no way seven is the right number because if you practice forgiveness like that, if you view forgiveness through, through that lens, it is going to crush you it is going to destroy you. There is no way that that is sufficient for a human being to get through life. You need more than that. You need more forgiveness. There will not be a day that goes by where you will not have to practice endless amounts of forgiveness. Forgiveness for the human is like, it's ubiquitous, it's like breathing. Every time you breathe, you're gonna have to practice forgiveness. Jesus is saying there needs to be an endless limit. And here's what he's really saying. And I want you to wrestle with this. He's not saying you have to do this, he's saying you're going to need to do this. In order to survive the human experience, forgiveness isn't something that you have to do, it's something you're going to need. And what Jesus goes on to do in the rest of these verses is explain to us both the why and the how of forgiveness. And as he's done so many times, he's going to do it in the form of a parable. So let's jump into Jesus' parable. Here is what he says in verse 23. He says, Therefore, because forgiveness is endless and limitless and seven's not even enough to get you through breakfast, therefore the kingdom of heaven, which is what we've been talking about all through chapter 18, the kingdom of heaven, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and he began, uh, he began a settlement. Sorry, he began the settlement, and a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, 10,000 bags of gold doesn't land very, um, it doesn't mean much to us. This is the equivalent of 40 years of salary. Some commentators have gone so far as to say this is the equivalent, modern-day equivalent, of $4 billion. Don't miss Jesus' point here. The amount that this servant owed this king was an infinite amount. Like, it was so much that he could never possibly have even dreamed or imagined to pay the king back. And so this servant was brought to the king, and then it says this in verse uh, 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to pay the debt. So here's the situation. You have a king and you have a servant. The servant owes the king so much like that it's beyond his scope or ability to ever imagine paying and so what the king does is he has the servant and he has his wife and his children and all the stuff sold into functional slavery. Now, there's something interesting about the kind of slavery that Jesus is describing here in this parable. It was what they call a debtor's slavery. So this wasn't a slavery where you would work your way. Uh, Oftentimes, what would happen is you owed somebody money, you'd get sold into slavery, and then you would work off your your debt until you could pay it back, and then you would be free. This was a debtor's slavery, meaning there was no end to the the slavery that this family was going to be put through, because that's how big the debt was. The debt was massive. It was beyond comprehension. It was not something that could ever possibly be paid back. Functionally, it was an eternal debt, and it was an eternal punishment that they were going to have to pay. Now, don't miss what Jesus is doing here, right? He's telling us a parable, and what is he talking about? He's talking about our relationship with him. He's talking about our standing, the human condition, the human standing before God, that he is king and we are servant. We have an infinite debt that we owe the king, and we deserve what this servant deserves. Uh, the way that the Bible frames up the human condition is uh, through this lens of what, what the scriptures call sin. That our sin is like a debt. And this is kind of the language that the Apostle Paul uses many times to the New, New Testament. That, that our sin is like a debt that is owed to God, but it's a debt that we could never pay. It's, it's not some money that we owe to a king, but it's, a, it's an eternal debt owed to an eternal king that requires an eternal consequence. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's no amount of work that we could do to pay off the debt that we owe the king. This is why Martin Lloyd-Jones calls forgiveness the most significant, the most important question, the most fundamental reality of the universe. Because deep in our souls, there's this nagging reality that we have a debt that needs to be forgiven. And God is the only one who could possibly forgive it. And some of us hear this description by Jesus of the human condition and we and we think and we think this is a little excessive. When we think of the human condition, we don't often think of humanity as as rotten to the core. Nobody likes to talk about humanity as rotten to the core, right? When we when we talk to our kids, we're not like you're a dirty rotten sinner, rotten to the core. We're like no, you're a snowflake. You're one of a kind. You're unique and special. Nobody's like you. But we've, we've kind of grown up in this Western secular mindset, kind of post-enlightenment. And what's, what the fruit of that is is that we are the solution to every problem. We are the ones who can save ourselves. Our, our family watched a movie last week. It's an older movie. If you haven't watched it yet, totally recommend it. It's a movie, Interstellar, kind of dystopian reality, worlds coming to an end. Who's going to save the world? We are. We can save ourselves. And inside of each and every one of us, there's this little spark of humanity. And all that needs to happen is us to look, we just need to look inside of ourselves and nurture that little spark into a roaring flame to reach our greatest potential. That's all you got to do, folks. Look inside yourselves. Jesus hears this idea, this secular, humanistic idea that you can be the Savior of your own problems, of your own reality, of your own world. And what does he say? (coughs) Wrong. Wrong. You cannot save yourself. Jesus says, if you look inside yourself, what are you going to find? You are going to find brokenness. You are going to find sin. You are going to find out that you are a functional disaster. By the way, if you're new, welcome to West Village. It's great having you this morning. But Jesus is saying, that is the reality. Are you made in the image and likeness of God? Yes, of course, you are made in the image and likeness of God. You have dignity, value, and worth in his eyes. He breathes his very breath into your nostrils, but do not miss Jesus' point. You are marred and stained by the reality of sin. And in and of ourselves, we have nothing to offer. We are are infinitely indebted to our king. We have nothing. What will we do? What will our response be? Well, look at what happens next. And don't miss what Jesus is saying here because he's going to get to forgiveness. And he's going, what he's telling us is our ability to forgive is predicated on properly understanding our condition. If you do not understand your condition before God, you will not be able to forgive. You will not be able to forgive yourself and you will not be able to forgive others. It starts with a fundamental understanding that you are in debt. To the king. Look at what happens next. Verse 26. At this, this reality the servant is faced with, he fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now on the surface, this sounds really noble, doesn't it? King is sitting there, the servant's at his feet, the king's laying down the, the verdict to the servant. The servant's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to pay you back. Be patient with me, king. But what does it demonstrate? It demonstrates that the servant actually has no idea how indebted he is to the king. He actually thinks his debt is small. And because his debt is small, he thinks he can work it off and pay it back. How many of us view our relationship with God like that? Right? We view our relationship with God like yeah, I know I don't always do the right thing, but I try really hard to do the right thing. And at the core, I'm kind of a good person. And so really, all I gotta do is clean myself up, try hard, get my life in order, and then I'm gonna be right with God. Start going back to church, you know, pray some prayers, do some churchy things, help old ladies cross the street, open the door for some people, you know, be really patient with the lady that's taking way too long at the grocery store. And then I'm good, I'm good. Here's the problem with that view of your relationship with God. You don't understand the fundamental issue. You don't understand that at the core there is a brokenness that exists that needs to be reconciled, and you can't actually pay it back. And look at what happens next, verse 27 the servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt and let him go. The servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt, and let him go. It's unbelievable. The king looks at the servant who owes him everything, can't pay him back, even a fraction of what he owes, and the king has pity, and he forgives him. He says, all right, you can go. You can go the word gospel literally translated means good news and it's it's this idea of a proclamation a, a proclamation of truth that is just, is just kind of called out over a group of people it's not a uni- it's actually not a uniquely christian word uh, it was a word that was used by kings and emperors and and rulers and when they would win a victory they would send back Somebody to the capital to proclaim a gospel, a good news declaration over a group of people. Hey, we won the war. Hey, victory is ours. These people didn't fight in the victory, but they they get to experience and enjoy the reality of the victory that was won for them on their behalf. What's happening here in verse 27 is a proclamation is made over the servant by the king, a good news proclamation, a picture of the grace of God. This servant experiences the mercy. Something that that he didn't deserve was granted to him. The grace was given to him. Now, I want you to imagine for a second you're this servant. Uh, Imagine what it feels like to walk out of that room and to be walking home to your family. Imagine what the conversation was like at the dinner table that night as you were experiencing all of this. You and your wife or your, your spouse are sitting down, and you're like, well, this is where things were going, and this is where they've ended up. How are you going to feel? Like, it's a pretty good day, right? This, this is an above-average day. This is better than somebody paying for your coffee, uh, you know, in line ahead of you at Starbucks. Or like, you are—this is unbelievable, The Apostle Paul, when he describes the reality of the gospel many times in his letters, he uses the Greek word scandalon, or it means scandalous. It's shocking. It's a grace that is so immense, it's beyond our comprehension. We hear it time and time and time again, and it doesn't really land with us because it's so big that it's almost like, it's kind of like when someone talks to you about trying to end, you know, world hunger. It's so big, you don't even know what to do with it. You're like, where do I start? I guess I should eat all my dinner or something because I don't even know what else to do because it's so big that I can't connect with it. The grace of God is so big that sometimes we have a hard time even wrapping our minds and hearts around the significance of what we've experienced. And that's why Jesus tells this parable because I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be the servant. Imagine what he would have felt. Jesus is saying that's your reality, that God's grace is for you. His forgiveness is for you. His mercy is for you, that you had a debt that was infinite. You couldn't pay it, and the king grants you his grace. If you think about our culture, the moment that we find ourselves in, but really this isn't unique to our moment, right? Circumstances change, but the problems are all the same. People are all the same at the core of who we are. There's this reality that we are living in. We're, we are such a graceless people. You think about the, the the conversation, the political commentary and conversation that we're having. You think about the way we interact with one another on social media, the way that we just talk in general about one another to one another, there's this reality where we live as if we are an impoverished people when it comes to forgiveness and grace. Do you know why that is? It's because we're an impoverished people when it comes to forgiveness and grace. You see, if you think of yourself as a pretty good person who needs a little bit of Jesus to get yourself over the hump, and you don't realize that you're a broken person who's in desperate need of God's grace to save you and forgive you, then you're not going to have a lot of grace to offer others. But if like this servant who experiences so much of God's grace, you receive that, then all of a sudden you have this new understanding of what it means to be forgiven, of what it means to experience radical grace, radical mercy, grace and mercy that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve, you didn't do anything for. And what Jesus is painting a picture for us of is the cross. He's painting a picture for us of the cross where where Jesus comes and he lays down his life. He looks at our plight from heaven and he comes all the way from heaven to earth and he actually lays down his body in our place for our sins. He goes to the cross and he pays the debt that we didn't deserve. And just as this servant sits at the feet of his master and functionally is insulting him, saying, I'm going to try and pay you back. We insult Jesus. We, we, we were the ones mocking him. We were the ones. Spitting on him. We were the ones who were functionally crucifying him. We were his enemies, the Apostle Paul says. His enemies. And what does Jesus cry out on the cross to his heavenly Father about his enemies? You and me. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then, right before he breathes his last breath, he says, It is finished. And in that moment, forgiveness is granted. It's granted. This is so important for you to understand family you cannot earn forgiveness. You cannot earn forgiveness. You can only receive it. Some of you are trying to earn God's forgiveness but you can't. You can only receive it. Some of you are trying to earn the forgiveness of somebody else you can't. You can only receive it. Some of you are asking someone else to earn your forgiveness and they can't. They can only receive it. And you're going to say, but that's not fair I don't like it. It's too much. I can't. And Jesus would say to you, I know. Forgiveness is costly. I understand. It's a scandal. It's a scandal. Jesus goes on, Matthew chapter 18. I need to pick up the pace here. Matthew chapter 18, verse 28. He says this, his fellow... Uh, Sorry, verse 28. But when the servant went out, so the servant receives his forgiveness, he leaves. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coin. This was like not very much money. That's what Jesus is getting after here. He grabbed him and began to choke him. And look at what he says here. He says, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused and instead he went off and the man, uh, and the man throw, had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back his debt. There's an obvious irony here, right? You have a servant who's received so much forgiveness from a king, he encounters another servant who, whose debt is so much smaller than the one that he's already been forgiven for, and he's unwilling to issue the same forgiveness that he was given, even a small amount of that forgiveness. In that moment... Think about this with me for a second. In the moment, the servant that received the forgiveness from the king, he understands that there is a great costliness to forgiveness. That while it can't be earned, the person that has to issue it, and it, it costs them something. It costs Jesus his life, and when we issue forgiveness to another person, there's a cost to it. Notice what the the forgiven servant did to the, the servant who had the lesser debt. What does he do? He grabs him by the throat to choke him. Why does he do that? because he owes him something. There's a debt that needs to be paid and I need atonement for my debt. So I'm gonna grab you by the throat to choke you. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to throw you in jail. You have to do something to earn my forgiveness. Let me ask you a question. How many of you right now are grabbing somebody by the throat or you want to, and you might not be doing it physically, but you're doing it in your heart and you're holding on to them Choking them, trying to get back what they owe you. How many of you have somebody in prison right now and you're holding them there hostage until they can pay back what they owe you? How many of you are putting yourself in prison? holding yourself hostage for something you've done the servant wants his pound of flesh he wants his atonement he wants to crucify the one who has sinned against him just like we are trying to crucify others for their sins against us and some of us were crucifying ourselves and what jesus is saying is this unforgiveness it will ruin your soul Because here's the deeply ironic thing. You think you're punishing them. Do you know who you're actually punishing? Yourself. Because not a day goes by that you don't think about it. You don't think about him. You don't think about her. You don't think about it. You're enslaved to it. I've sat in my office with people in their 50s whose parents are dead. They're dead. And they won't forgive. And from the grave, their parents still have them in prison. Their souls are being tormented by their own unforgiveness, their own inability, inability to forgive. And Jesus here is laying out for us how this is going to work. And this is where, where I think C.S. Lewis can be helpful. He wrote an excellent article on the issue of forgiveness. I encourage you to go Google it. I might, if I can remember, I'll post it on social media. But he wrote this like little two-page article on forgiveness, and it's so great. And he's actually talked specifically about this parable, or at least alludes to it in this article. And and in that article, he says, I know I know. Jesus' ask is a big ask, right? Infinite, limitless forgiveness. It's a really big ask. It's a big ask to, to ask someone to forgive every time, all the time. He goes, but I know you know how to do it. You know how I know you know how to do it? And this is paraphrasing C.S. Lewis, right? He doesn't quite talk like this. He's a little more sophisticated than I am. I know you know how to do it. You know how I know you know how to do it? Because you do it all the time. You forgive yourself all the time. You justify your own actions all the time. Like if you're married, you get this, right? This is like marriage math. Like if there's a problem in your marriage, like you're willing to take a little bit of the blame, but it's like 90% her fault, 10% my fault, right? Like 90% his fault, 10% my fault. Like I'll take a little bit. But it's mostly them, and then we figure out a way to justify why we did what we did, or why we didn't do what we should have done. And we kind of go through this justification gymnastics game that we play with ourselves to kind of get ourselves off the hook. We let ourselves off the hook all the time. Why can't we do that with other people? And Lewis says this, and I think this is so profound. He said, it's because you look to the wrong place. You look to yourself, to justify your own actions. You look to your circumstances to justify your own actions. You're like the servant who sits at the foot of the king and says, I'll pay it back. I'll pay it back. I have a way. I'll pay it back. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. You justify the debt. He said, but when you stop looking to yourself, when you stop looking to others, when you stop looking to your circumstances, and when you look to God... you realize you can't pay it back. You realize there's, there's nothing you can do. It's, all, it's actually, it's actually an, an insult to bring whatever pittance you have to the table to try and pay back this infinite debt that you owe. So what? There's nowhere else to go. So what? And that's where he says this. Somebody needs to write this down. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable to others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. When it's just about circumstances, when it's just about justification, You'll never have enough forgiveness for anyone, not even yourself. But when you can, with sober judgment, look at your own heart and realize that you owe an infinite debt to an infinite king, and he he lavishly pours out his grace and mercy, that changes the conversation. I've been forgiven for so much. I'm rich in forgiveness. I have it to give out because I've received so much of it. And here Jesus gives us both the why and the how. Why do we forgive? Because we've been forgiven for so much. That's why. And to not not give out forgiveness is to ruin our own souls. How do we forgive? We recognize that we have an unending resource of forgiveness in Jesus. but it doesn't end there because Jesus ends on this very curious note picking up in verse 31 when the other servant saw what had happened other servants sorry saw what had happened they were outraged and went and told their master everything verse 32 then the master called the servant in you wicked servant he said i canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? You've been forgiven for much. Shouldn't you forgive? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then verse 35, this is, and Jesus comes out of parable mode here and speaks to his disciples. He speaks to you and me again. Don't miss these words. This is how your heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister. From your heart. What? Is Jesus saying we have to earn his forgiveness? Is he saying if I hold a grudge, he won't forgive me? That's not what he's saying. But I think it's really important that we recognize something here, that Jesus sees no incongruence between a God who can forgive so freely, yet at the same time will hold us accountable so ruthlessly and if Jesus sees no conflict in a God like that, then we shouldn't either. Uh, 17th century French philosopher Voltaire, who was a huge, he was kind of post-enlightenment, huge critic of Christianity in the church. Uh, he was asked a question by his, by his followers, by those who were critiquing his critique of the church, what are you going to do if you're wrong? You're going to get to heaven one day, Right? and you're wrong about all your critiques of Jesus and all critiques of the church and religion all that, you're going to get there, you're going to stand before God. Here's Voltaire's answer. Well, he has to forgive me. That's his job. And I think some of us have that idea of God's grace. He has to forgive me. That's his job. He has no other option. I prayed a prayer when I was six. I went to summer camp. I go to church. He has to forgive me. That's his job. Not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is that if you are unwilling to forgive, then you're just like the servant in the parable. And what was the core problem for the servant in the parable? He didn't understand his debt because he didn't understand his debt, he couldn't receive the grace of God. There was no room for it. He was a good person. He went to church on Sunday. I went to Christian school. I went to summer camp. There's no room for God's grace. Matthew chapter 18, the very beginning, Jesus' disciples asked him a question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he says, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must change or become like one of these little ones, like a little child. Someone who recognizes their utter need for God. And what Jesus is saying here is that is how we forgive. That is why, and that is how we forgive when we recognize that we have been forgiven for the inexcusable. And we have forgiveness to grant to others. May we be a people who are marked by the scandalous grace and forgiveness of God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, We thank you that you love us so much, that you saw our plight, and you didn't leave us, but you entered in. You're the the shepherd who leaves the 99 to come after the one. You're the, the loving father who pursues his lost children. You're the gracious savior who got up off the throne. And entered in to the servant's plight, and you rescued us. You paid a debt we couldn't pay. We've been forgiven for so much, and I just pray that right now in this moment, Spirit of God, you would heal the wounds. You would heal the hurt. You would heal the pain. You would heal the brokenness. You would minister to us. And that would produce in us a great joy, a great love that would then spill out and give us and grant us the ability to forgive others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move into a time of response, and as we say often, we respond in a number of ways. One of the ways is giving, as Dave already talked about which you can do afterwards in the lobby or on your phone. Uh, we're going to sing in just a second, but we're also going to move into a time of communion. So if you have your communion elements, grab those. I'm just going to get mine ready here, but pull yours out and prepare. Um. As I was preparing for for this moment, I was trying to think of an analogy that might be helpful. And I want you to imagine as we come to the table that your your forgiveness reality is like a bucket. Uh, And the more full that your bucket is of forgiveness, the more forgiveness you are then able to dole out. And if in your mind, this going back to the parable, in your mind, if the amount of forgiveness that you need to receive from God is a small amount, then you have very little forgiveness in your bucket to dole out. But if in your mind, the amount of forgiveness you have to receive from God is an immense amount, like it's, it's a vast amount, like it's it's an unending amount, then then what's going to happen is your bucket is going to be it's going to be overflowing. It's going to constantly be gushing with forgiveness. Water is just going to be pouring out. The water of grace is going to be coming and coming and coming and coming. As we come to the, the table, the communion table, Jesus uses an analogy of actually taking him in. To, to use the analogy of a bucket, we're, we're about to be filled up filled up with the actual person and work of Jesus in this moment. This is a symbolic moment where we get to experience in a tangible way the grace of God. And so as you come to the table this morning, here's here's the ask. It's that you would just take a moment to humble yourself. Reflect on your own sin And receive an overwhelming amount of God's forgiveness. That your bucket would be full. So just as Jesus instructed us, take this wafer which represents the body of Christ and eat in remembrance of him. And as Jesus instructed us, take this juice which represents his shed blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, the Apostle Paul says. The forgiveness of our sins. Drink in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have an an endless amount of forgiveness. Pour it into our hearts right now, we pray. In Jesus' name.